what I would say is when we're thinking about getting off world and we're talking about the way space economic activity will take off, we should think about it in the same way we think about um, early uh, explorers and early settlers and how those economic engines set up. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hey there, Downlink listeners. India's space agency has just put the Pragyan lunar rover into sleep mode. It's a necessary precaution to protect it from extreme cold because when the sun sets this week, the moon's night is bringing the temperature down to at least negative 180 degrees Celsius. And because of this coming Earth weeks-long deep freeze, Easter was also putting the Vikram lander into hibernation in the next day or so. The hope is that once the sunlight returns on September 22nd, both the lander and the rover can be reawakened to continue the Chandrayaan-3 mission. So this is a good time to consider the lunar economy. What will it really take to build one and not just admire the fact that when the Vikram lander touched down on August 23rd, India joined the super select club of lunar capable nations. Now that's India, the United States, Russia, and China. The lunar economy means generating measurable value in dollars and cents here on earth. And a very powerful argument against investing in the lunar economy has been the cost of infrastructure, because it's some big, huge, scary number. But what's not so scary big is the fact that India's moon mission cost a mere $75 million. That amount may, just maybe, buy you a cup of burnt coffee on NASA's $93 billion Artemis program. That comparison is not exactly fair, as that U.S. program is supposed to send humans and moon buggies, not just rovers, to the moon. But getting back to that $75 million number, what is comparable is that under NASA's Commercial Lunar Payload Services Program, the space company Intuitive Machines is going to make a go of sending its Nova Sea spacecraft and payloads to the moon safely, hopefully without crashing like the Japanese company iSpace did earlier this year. And Intuitive Machines is doing it on a fixed-price contract worth $77.2 million. Again, not billions. These missions demonstrate that it can take a lot less treasure to enter and operate in the cislunar region. That lowers the cost of building economic infrastructure, lowers the bar for commercial operations, and could intensify geopolitical friction. On Friday, after the following discussion was recorded, Russia single-handedly stopped a UN working group from sending a report to the General Assembly on norms of space behavior. So with that as context, we have Mike Dickey, Courtney Stad, and Downlink regular George Poland to consider just what will it take to establish and secure a cislunar economy and DARPA's newest moon program, Luna 10. Here's our conversation. Hello, Mike, Courtney, George. Welcome and thank you for joining me today on the Downlink Podcast. Thank you, Thanks, Laura. Laura. It's great to be back. Thank you. Great to be here. 
Now, two of you are new to the podcast, and there are also new listeners who will want to know who George is. So we're going to start off with a round of introductions. And George, as you know the ropes, why don't you go first? Sure. Happy to, Laura. Thanks for having me back. My name is George Pullen. I'm a space economist. I am the chief economist and co-founder of Milky Way Economy. We are a fifth industrial revolution. By the way, that means space industrial revolution. We are a fifth industrial revolution think tank, uh, investor, and consultancy. We're based out of D.C., but we also have offices in Texas and Florida. And Courtney? Yes, uh, Courtney Stad. Thank you for inviting me to be part of this interesting discussion. I've been in the commercial space field for 45 years, one-third in the government, uh, White House, NASA, Department of Commerce, and the Department of Transportation. And the rest of the time has been with various pathfinder companies and GPS, satellite imagery, launch companies, telecom. And today I, I do consulting, uh, mostly in the business development, space policy, regulatory side of things. And Mike, what about you? Thanks, Laura. Yeah, I'm Mike Dickey. I'm a, a co-founder of a new company. We're 120 days old today, I think, called Alera Nova, and it is a space consultancy. Um, I come from a national security background in the Air Force and then sort of the space part of the Air Force and then uh, and then as part of the uh, stand-up of the Space Force and did spend some time in industry as well. And we, we founded Alera Nova to, to help with this kind of fifth industrial revolution uh, consulting. Um, like George is doing, and to, with a focus, I think, on national security and, and international partnerships for security as well. Very exciting. Thank you all so much for being here. You know, in our discussion today, we're going to cover India's soft landing on the moon's South Pole and what it means for the cislunar economy. And we're also going to talk about DARPA's foray into lunar infrastructure development in a minute. But I think we need some basics here to bring the whole audience along with this. So, Mike, I'd love for you to kick off this discussion by giving the audience an understanding of just where is the cislunar region and why are some U.S. national security organizations like the U.S. Space Force and DARPA you know, starting to show some more interest in operating there, perhaps in the not-so-distant future? You know, why do space power advocates call the moon the ultimate high ground? Sure. I'm glad to do that. Um, probably the, the easiest way to think about cislunar space is it's the, the volume of space in which the moon's gravity has an influence on the motion of, of a spacecraft. And so Earth is like 80 times heavier than the moon. So when we're in what we traditionally think of as an Earth orbit, uh, you don't really feel the moon because you're so overwhelmingly dominated by the by the gravity of, of the Earth. And that's what orbital mechanics would call the two-body problem. It's a very simplified way of describing motion in space. We only have two things to worry about, the satellite and the Earth in this case. But as you get farther and farther away from the Earth, at some point you start to feel the tug of the moon a little bit uh, in addition to the Earth. And now you're in what the orbital mechanics call a three-body problem. And, and the three-body problem, the math gets really complicated, and there are implications to that math that, um, that we'll talk about that make it sort of hard to operate in that environment. Um, and, and then as you get closer and closer to the moon, the moon starts to dominate, and pretty soon you're just in a moon's orbit, and you don't really feel the Earth anymore. So, so cislunar space is, is kind of all of that. And there's a couple of interesting places in cislunar space that people may have heard of called Lagrange points, and there's five of them to be exact. So 
So again, when you think about the three-body problem and the tug of the moon and the earth, there's these five locations where they're kind of equal. The moon is kind of tugging on you as, as much as the earth is, um, and, and it kind of makes a satellite seem to hover in these locations, although again, that's not what they're really doing and the math is complicated. Um, and you can think that there would be one between the earth and the moon. It's closer to the moon than the earth because the earth is, has such a stronger gravity field. Uh, but there's also one ahead of the moon in the moon's orbit and one behind the moon in the moon's orbit. There's one on the dark side of the moon, just beyond uh, the moon. And then there's actually one on the on the back side of the Earth opposite the moon's orbit. And these are all these kind of interesting locations that um, that you can do science at. There's security implications, and I'm sure we'll we'll talk about all that stuff. Probably the, the two things that make it hard to operate in this cislunar environment is, is one, it's just really far away, right? Um, the International Space Station is like 250 miles away, so that's like driving from D.C. to New York. Geostationary orbit, which is where a lot of the original communication satellites parked, and it has this unique condition that it's a 24-hour orbit, and so it looks like it's hovering above you as you rotate around the Earth in a 24-hour period over the course of a day. That's 25,000 miles, so two orders of magnitude farther, and that's like a lap around the equator. The moon is 250,000 miles, so 10 times farther away than, than geosynchronous orbit. But yeah, and it's a, it's a thousand times farther away than the International Space Station. So, so what makes this hard is that one is just communicating. You know, radio signals, which is how we communicate, weaken at the square of how far away you are. So, it, so a signal from geo is gonna be a hundred times weaker than from the uh, ISS orbit. But at the moon, it's like a million times weaker. And so communicating is very hard. You can th think of your cell phone, right? If you, if you, instead of you had four or five bars on your cell phone, if you had a million bars and only one of them was lit up, think about how hard it would be to communicate in that environment. And then the second thing I would say is, uh, because the math is hard, a lot of the simplifying assumptions break down in cislunar space. And so things move very, you know, it's kind of, it's hard to predict because the math is complicated. You can do it, you can do the math, but the entire infrastructure, and I think we'll talk about an infrastructure later, the entire infrastructure we have to track things in space is built around all these two body assumptions. And so now you get into the cislunar space and it's hard to, not only hard to communicate, it's hard to track, it's hard to navigate and things can get surprising. You can be surprised by things that are happening in that environment. And, and that's where we come to the national security piece, right? National security people, do not like to be surprised, and uh, and so so that's kind of where the, where the interest is. It's just having situational awareness of what's happening in that environment. Yeah, and may, may I compliment you, Mike? I've sat through innumerable technical briefings. That was one of the clearest and really well framed. Forgive me for being a little pedantic. I know you you referred to the dark side, a tribute to Pink Floyd, but we all <laughs> know it's the far side. But with that, uh, one minor exception, fantastic <laughs> overview. It's not dark I, if you're there, I guess, right? So. Right, <laughs> That's right. True. D despite what science fiction movies might show us. Indeed. Um, I, <laughs> I, I'm not going to make fun of any particular there. Um, what I would want to add, though, there is when we're talking about risks, I think we should also talk about some of the added complexities, not just in the math, but also in the environment. Um, the environment is very different, and not just that, but the weather, right? So space weather. 
is also going to be very different. There's going to be very different effects on instruments. And those are, again, risks that we have to identify. Uh, Laura, you know my background as a banker, so I'd like to make sure I map out all my risks. Uh, that's one of them we need to think about when we're thinking about lunar orbits and lunar infrastructure. Now, before we move on, I'd like to ask just a quick follow-up question. Why do space power advocates then call this area the ultimate high ground? So, you know, if you think of air, you know, or a, a tall hill, right, for the Army being the high ground, but then when we got airborne, air becomes the high ground. Now we go into Earth orbit, and, and Earth orbit now can look down and see even above all of that. And this, literally, this cislunar domain is just higher up in space. And so, so you can come down into the what we normally call the space domain where all of our satellites are and all this activity is going on in Earth orbit, you can come at that from above and you can come at that in surprising ways, like I mentioned. So, you know, you, you, you don't want to cede that high ground to anybody who has nefarious, um, you know, objectives. So I think that's, uh, and, and, you know, at some someday, cislunar won't be the high ground, right? It'll be beyond that, but that we're a long way from that. And, and I think, too, to add to, to Mike's answer, and he brought it up when he was talking about Lagrange points, um, this isn't just about cislunar being the high ground. This is also about those Lagrange points being of strategic importance, both in terms of the way I think the world and economics, but also in terms of the way that you can operate differently there, right? So everyone is probably very well aware of that the James Webb Space Telescope is currently in L2. L2 is something like one and a half million kilometers away, but yet it can remain in L2 in a steady um, <clears throat> a steady position and do some amazing science. So we're already starting to use those uh, pieces of quote unquote high ground in different ways right now for science, but in the near future, probably strategy and economics. And we're not the only ones in L2 either, right? <laughs> no, we're not alone in L2. <laughs> well, just to add to that, Laura, to your listeners, we have an adversary in the form of China, which has established a lander on the South Pole of, of the moon. So we actually have an adversary that uh, for the first time is looking down on our highest orbits, military orbits in Earth orbit. So it's uh, of concern. Obviously, Russians and Soviets were of concern at one point. Today, it's uh, China. And Courtney... Just to piggyback a bit on, on you and your expertise, what is the depth and breadth of U.S. commercial interests now, or, or maybe that's just too hard to gauge, as it seems like every week there's a new contract announcement from such and such space company to deliver goods or services in the cislunar region. But on the other hand, only four nations and zero companies have managed to land there. And there are more than 100 already uh, slated launches uh, going to the moon, and about half of them are commercial. So help us, help, help the audience, you know, wrap our heads around this. Where are we in this journey in what are really your wor words of getting off world and settling the moon? Yeah, let me start with historical context. With all the credit that NASA and its sister agencies around the world deserve for developing space, it has been government-dominated for well over past a half century. And I represent a community of commercial entrepreneurs who have long sought the government, if you allow the metaphor, to take the foot off the neck 
of the entrepreneur and allow that genius to prosper. And I'm pleased to say over the past decade, two decades, we've now seen an extraordinary explosion of innovation in the space world. Now, in many times, it's a partnership with the U.S. government, both military and civil, uh, but we do have a healthy combination of venture money. In fact, there is more venture capital money overall in the aggregate over the past decade plus. I think George would back me up on this being invested than certainly on the civil space side. Uh, so an extraordinary amount of money going into just about everything from launch rockets to uh, uh, space servicing to all sorts of uh, in-orbit uh, infrastructure. As I speak, we're looking at the space station being terminated in roughly 2030. Uh, there are at least a half dozen, of which four habitats are on contract with NASA, but there are other venture-backed space stations that are in the offing that are looking to pick up the slack and support that transition from a primarily government-run and managed asset to uh, commercial. And obviously, the national security community and civil community have a lot of interest in the emergence of that infrastructure. Meanwhile, you have companies coincident with that that are emerging, looking at the prospect of potential mining of rare minerals on the earth, on the moon, excuse me, that are looking at uh, the possibility of using um, the availability of water on the moon for the possibility of uh, fuel for rocket engine, people actively looking at habitats on the moon. And there are also obviously science observatory interest in the use of the moon as a platform as well. Uh, there are hundreds of companies around the world led by the U.S. that are actively looking at developing a cislunar ecosystem in relatively short order. It's not generations from now, but we're looking at the next really couple of decades, a lot of intense activity. Uh, all sorts of numbers are thrown around in terms of potential uh, fortunes to be made, mining the moon. I don't know about George. I, I don't take a lot of the numbers that seriously, but uh, I think the sense is that there's enough potential to warrant the, uh, at least the thinking is, uh, to warrant the level of uh, interest that we're seeing. And it's very intense in the cislunar area. Yeah, I have a bit of a, like, <laughs> a bit of think something I want to add there. So Please. I do agree. I, I do agree that there's been uh, a overwhelming outpour and a very much needed outpour of commercial, commercial investment coming to bear when it comes to space. And it's important that we highlight that and we recognize that. I know, for example, um, you know, Space Capital tracks something like 1,800 or maybe it's up to 2,000 now different companies in the space sector. And I know that, um, for example, PitchBook talks about there being something like you know, 275 to $300 billion worth of private capital that has gone into space companies over the last 10 years. But if we just stop for a quick minute and, and do the math on what that 275 or even 300 billion number means over 10 years. Yes, it's been more lately, but just forgive me here and we'll divide by 10. So pretend it's one of my classes and we're just going to simplify here for my example. If it's if you look at that as 30 billion a year from private markets, well, let's all be honest with each other and put that next to the US's budget. The US alone is spending 65 billion this year on space. And so Yes, the private markets are coming along and they're growing very quickly, but it is still a, um, a space race, the, our new Space Race 2.0, which we're in, that has the addition of commercial players and the addition of, of new international players, like we were talking about with the, uh, the landing by India. But it's still a space race that has a very large contribution from government spend. And let me, let me um, 
add the through the national security glasses to yeah. this conversation about commercial yeah. and private sector, you know that the military is only one aspect of national security. It we want our commercial industry, our our STEM, and and all of that to be. Uh, to, to be leading the world, right? We, we want entrepreneurs, we want the U.S. to be leading that innovation because that is also how we get national power, right? To be out in front of that, to have the technical uh, and engineering and business sense to make, uh, to make this all a, a strong economy uh, and on a commercial basis sometime in the future. Well, so George, you're my economist. You're deeply dedicated to national security. You're also down there in the trenches with the space companies working to build the infrastructure for the fifth industrial revolution, which includes the moon, as you said. When we're talking about economic development and economy, a lunar economy and national security, what are the necessary ingredients, economically speaking? I mean, what do we need to do here on Earth to get off world and onto the moon securely? I love this question. Um, and I'm glad you gave it to me, Laura. What I would say is when we're thinking about getting off world and we're talking about the way space economic activity will take off, we should think about it in the same way we think about um, early uh, explorers and early settlers and how those economic engines set up. Okay, so what we should see first is that we will see more and more commercial space stations come to fruition. I think that if you and that's have, in low uh, Earth orbit, earlier writings. Yes, these and very yes. Thank you for the clarification. Yes, these will be in low Earth orbit. These will be in Leo, and these uh, commercial space stations. Um, my estimates have them at between six and twelve. Um, as we see that happen, we will see an increase in activity from the likes of advanced manufacturers. Uh, also, very much uh, a big interest is from the biotech and the pharmaceutical industries uh, who will be using these commercial space stations for uh, laboratories of innovation. As that develops, the infrastructure will push our, us out to support commerce, to support um, a more regular schedule of refueling, a more regular schedule of supplying these space stations with, with water, with air, with food, and bringing back not just innovation, because of course, if it's innovation, we might better bring that back as a data packet, right? <laughs> but also bringing back potential products. I think after that, think about when we're moving away from space stations that are in LEO, talk about um, the points of interconnection between the Earth and the Moon. Uh, Mike gave some great examples of just how much further it is, how much more difficult it is to operate there. We'll also be looking for these types of operating zones um, in and around the Moon's orbit. Now, some of these might just be satellites to support lunar operations, but some of them will also likely be places where we store fuel, store supplies, um, have redundancies in place that we can quickly get to the Moon for bases there. And then we're talking about pushing ourselves onto the lunar surface. We're talking about the development of lunar economic activity. Um, again, we have the same challenges, right? We're, we're bringing all the food with us. We are either bringing the water with us or we're processing what we can get there. We're talking about air. Um, people have to keep in mind that <clears throat> on a, when you talk about 
what we're going to need, much like we talked about settlers and people pushing out earlier on in the history of the world, humans need four liters of water a day. <laughs> and, and, and humans need 11,000 liters of air a day. We're, we're bringing this with us or we're processing it there. And so this is going to take infrastructure. This is going to take many, many supplies and resupplies moving back and forth between the Earth to space stations, between the Earth and space stations and the moon. And I think that when you, when you talk about the communication difficulties and delays, when you talk about the, the speed and efficiency that those will have to operate under, you're talking about new uh, types of propulsion. You're talking about new types of potentially shielding from the effects of that environment. You're talking about new ways of processing regolith and other materials to gain what you can in situ, which is you know, there on the moon to work with. And all of these parts are what's going to create a sustainable economic zone of activity in cislunar space. So, Laura, if I could interject just one caveat earlier when George was comparing the venture to the overall 60 some odd million dollar budget. I, again, as I said, I was referring specifically to the civil space rather than combining the military intel. So it's a, it's a pretty formidable amount of money, I think, by any, any definition. Um, I think for what George was saying, yes, of course, there are some fundamentals that need to be addressed. Commer communications. Uh, there are a number of commercial communication companies, optical, that are emerging very quickly. I'm involved with one of them to establish essentially the first Wi-Fi between the Earth and the Moon. That's critical. If you don't have your communications, a lot of things are not possible, From certainly from a business standpoint. Transportation is another key area, of course. At the end of the day, it's market, right? And people are still looking to define and quantify what that potential market is all about. And as a friend of mine 40 years ago warned, this could end up from commercialization in Earth orbit beyond to Moon, to being an extraordinarily robust new industrial revolution and all the wonderful things that many of us expect, or it could end up like Antarctica. We have basically government-subsidized research depots across uh, the solar systems, starting with the moon. So we're at that very interesting point in history. And I would argue that it's a rather uh, there's a lot of froth and churn going on in the uh, uh, space community overall, both government and private, as to what that future is all about and what, what the relationships between these various sectors will end up being. I'm just going to add some to the infrastructure discussion because um, it's so important. And, and, and I, I love to steal from, from Jeff Bezos on, on how he described what unlocked the success of Amazon, what unlocked the success mm -hmm. of his online bookstore was that somebody had already built all the infrastructure required to make that happen. So roads going to everybody's house, logistics companies like uh, the Postal Service and FedEx and UPS that could distribute goods to those houses, an internet that allowed consumers to browse the bookshelves from their living room, a secure digital payment system that, that didn't require handing cash back and forth over the counters. So all of that was built you know, previous to this so that these commercial applications uh, could sit on top of that infrastructure and really make a business out of it. If everybody's got to carry that infrastructure themselves, then none of this works. It has to be a, a, a community effort, a global effort, probably to create that infrastructure so that uh, commerce can move in that direction. And Mike, I wanted to follow up with you on what Courtney and George just said. 
and I hope I'm not putting you too much on the spot, but I've got to wonder, are we moving fast enough to secure U.S. national interests in space and, and definitely in the cislunar region? So there are first steps. Um, we're, we're certainly not there yet. Like I mentioned, I you know, in the situational awareness of what's happening in, in that environment is what the key national security objective is. And uh, we're not very good at it, frankly, right? We've got uh, one mission right now that the Air Force Research Lab is doing called Oracle. Oracle sending one satellite to kind of survey the, the volume around the moon. But we talked about just how huge that is. And one satellite's not going to do it. So I think the Space Force is, you know, thinking about what to do in the future. Does that become a, a constellation of satellites that might cover down? Certainly U.S. Space Command has the mission to understand what's happening there. And they're putting, you know, a demand signal on the rest of the DOD to step up their game. So, no, from my perspective, we're not going uh, fast enough. We're, we're just getting started. All right. Now that we have the basics out of the way, let's dive into what's probably the biggest news coming from the lunar surface since China's Chang'e 4 mission landed on the dark side near the South Pole in January 2019. And that is India's moon landing last week at the South Pole, but on the near side. Now, from a geostrategic point of view, it's huge what India did. You know, it has accomplished a, you know, a landing of the Chandrayaan 3's Vikram lander and Pragyan rover. And I'm sorry if I mess up the pronunciation of this, but it's a win for Team Democracy and Team Artemis. And they did it on a $75 million budget, not billions. And the lander and rover are pumping out science and discoveries. It's found nine elements, including oxygen and titanium and silicon and aluminum. You know, guys, what are the effects? Does any of this in any way light the, light the fires under derrieres to get moving? Well, first of all, let me add, uh, they landed on the far side, uh, not, not the near side, uh, but uh, it's big news. If any of you listened to Modi, the prime minister of India, you will note that he said that they were leading the way for the South, for, the, for that part of the world that has felt, if you will, disenfranchised. So there's an interesting geopolitical aspect to this, that India is really regarding itself, and I think rightly, as leading the way for, again, countries that have not traditionally been part of the, uh, the small elite uh, Western-led uh, space club. Clearly, with their rover, it's not just a lander. They also have an active rover. They're looking at water possibilities in, in that part of the moon. Uh, they have very interesting ambitions for mining resources on the moon. So, And it's a country that, although allied with the U.S., has certainly worked with uh, the Russians and, and have had problematic, but nonetheless, uh, some interactions with, with China off and on over, over the years. So that introduces an interesting and a very, very important, I think, dynamic to the whole cis-lunar equation. But does this, I mean, does this landing, you know, get get people here in the United States, like the folks up on the Hill or or others to say, right, you know, we need to get after this? Well, I, I personally, I think that we could do a better job of communicating to our policymakers the significance. But I know when I let Mike speak to it, uh, it certainly has not gone unnoticed in the uh, the Pentagon. And I know that some of my friends at NASA certainly are, are tracking it very closely. It's not clear to me to what extent the Congress, for example, 
as a whole has acknowledged the importance. I know that the White House Space Council under Vice President Harris is certainly uh, following it uh, very, very closely. I think there's something important here, right? So I think that although I am very impressed and I'm, I'm excited about the landing, I think we should also keep in mind that history doesn't repeat, but it often rhymes. And we should look back at uh, the first space race and some of the things we saw after our early success um, as the U.S. during the space race. And one of the things was within uh, a, a few years, sometime around 1968, we saw the Poor People's Campaign. And if you remember the Poor People's Campaign, it happened right after the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King. And people were picketing in front of NASA talking about $12 a day to feed astronauts, but we could feed kids for $8. Now, I don't know what $12 or $8 translates into for rupees, but I think we have to keep in mind that they're also grappling with many internal issues to include food insecurity issues, and that they need to walk this huge space milestone along a path that that protects it by making sure that everyone understands the many benefits that a cislunar economy can bring to India and, and to democracies around the world. I was going to add, you mentioned, you know, are, are we paying attention? The, the White House did put out a cislunar, cislunar space science and technology strategy out of the National Science and Technology Council. So, so there is, at the, in the executive branch, uh, certainly realization that this is, a, this is a place we need to pay attention to. This is a place we need to invest in. How that investment is being translated into uh, annual budgets, we're probably yet to see where I think all of us would like to see that go. But some of the policy outlines are now being formed to allow us to move in that direction. And I should add, Laura, that uh, at the same time, if I can extrapolate from what George was saying, there is a larger global issue here, which is if indeed Western-led countries establish presence on the moon, both from the standpoint of uh, defense and military usage and, of course, commercial we have to be careful that the countries uh, don't feel disenfranchised and that we have to figure out regimes where uh, they feel that this is not a repeat, frankly, of colonialism once again, and how one uh, apportions and deals with the uh, allocation of resource and so forth. These are, these are big issues and can't be ignored. My libertarian friends would say, just let the market decide. But uh, I would suggest from a reality standpoint, from a geopolitical standpoint, we have to take into account the overall perceptions that this uh, rush to cislunar and exploitation of resources will have. I, I think when we look back, it's going to be difficult to separate out what happened um, in Space Race 2.0 that was spurred on by the success of India. So for example, does this mean that we will see an increase in investment by Russia to have success on the moon? Or are we going to see a effect stemming more from the war in Ukraine. I think that when we look back, it'll be hard to separate which moment did what. Um, but I think that both of these are having long-term impacts on the forecast and long-term impacts on people's budgets. And that means budgets going up, by the way, when it comes to, to space and securing space. Yeah. And I, and I would say, and Mike, you can talk to this uh, more specifically, but the Cold War that Mike and I grew up in, frankly, it was bipolar, it was U.S. versus Soviet Union. Uh, today's situation, in many ways, the space race, if you will, with China and, and others entering the picture is much more complex. 
Uh, George has alluded to that. And I think we, we need to really make our policymakers understand that this is accelerating. As we said at one point during the conversation, a lot of actors, uh, commercial, both in this country and abroad, entering the Lunar effort to establish presence and see if they can make profit and, and so forth uh, over the next uh, couple of decades. And it's going to have enormous geopolitical uh, impact. So we, we need to be grappling with it today. That's something we can put off. And China itself today has an alliance with Russia, is pursuing its own set of global alliances vis-a-vis -vis space and opposition to the liberal democratic values of, of the West. So this is really shaping up to be a, a very daunting and very challenging uh, time. The barrier to entry was very high, right? Only the U.S. and the Soviet right. Union had the technical capacity and the budgets to do what was required to do. That barrier to entry is coming way down for a number of reasons. It's a whole separate podcast, but it means a whole lot of actors are going to come into that environment and you get just like you have a community, right? There's a lot of different uh, uh, interests in the, in a community and they're not all aligned. See, I want to just jump in real quick, gents, and really kind of pull some of the, the strings of, of what you guys have just been saying. When we're talking about barriers to entry, we're talking about speed, we're talking about, you know, paying attention, acting with alacrity. India did this for $75 million. That, that alone lowers the barrier for all kinds of nations, for all kinds of companies. Maybe there isn't a single point, or as George was saying, is this is this a moment that's a that's a turning point? Maybe it's not a moment that's a turning point. And I'm going to ask George this, but maybe it's the number, as in seventy five million dollars. And this is just a demonstrator. It could get less expensive. Yeah, money. <laughs> you know me; I like to follow the money, Laura. Exactly. And so do the, I. The price tag that they. Yeah, yeah, and the price tag that they did this for is super impressive. And I think when we're looking at our crystal balls, yes, this, this opens up the possibilities for commercial players who have the ability to allocate $75 million. Or to your point, we do expect costs to continue to come down. That's what we always look for in business. And so if you're talking about the ability for commercial players to reach the lunar surface for maybe as little as $25 million, I mean, that changes the ball game. It also changed the ball game when I put on my, you know, uh, U.S. Marine Corps hat. Um, and I think to myself, this also changes the strategy ball game because it's not just commercial players, but it's also, um, you know, to borrow from the expanse, a future Marco uh, Anaros who can also <laughs> who can also get there. So I think this opens up the game in a very, very new way. Now, DARPA which is on the security side of this equation, DARPA has launched a 10-year lunar architecture capability study, and it's called Luna 10. The goal is to rapidly develop a framework that identifies needed technologies to build lunar infrastructure. So we're talking communications, energy, mobility, and they want at least the framework that they're going to you know, create, or frameworks, because they, they said that they were looking at possibly working with more than one, but they want it to be shareable, scalable, and interoperable with others. Guys, what do you think of this? I mean, is this the beginning of something, you know, workable? Should DARPA be doing this? I mean, what are your thoughts and opinions on this? Well, I'll start. I'm extraordinarily excited by it. I think that 
Dr. Stephanie Tompkins, the DARPA Director, Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, deserves kudos, she and her program manager, uh, for taking the initiative. DARPA has historically been associated with game changers. Uh, Internet is certainly the most classic example, but even the early days of global positioning system and other game-changing technologies, they're small, only 200 and some odd 50 personnel. They take great pride in being agile and moving very quickly and being very innovative. So when I read about DARPA's interest in this study, I could only cheer because there are those of us who feel that we've been lax in this country and that uh, China's been moving very quickly from idea to proof of concept to uh, execution. And we need to really, really speed up our efforts. And I think DARPA can really lead the charge. I'm frustrated that there's been some pushback, and perhaps Mike can talk more directly to this in, in some quarters of the Pentagon, but I'm hopeful that the DARPA director will prevail and move forward with this, I think, a very, very critically important effort. Yeah, I think you, sh- you shouldn't think of DARPA is sort of, you know, this aggressive form of the Defense Department. I mean, that's Courtney said, game-changing technologies and game-changing concepts. So, uh, so th- this is not their first rodeo in this this area either. They, they did something a few years ago called CONFERS, and I, I apologize, I don't remember what the acronym stood for, but it was to bring a whole bunch of industry and, and other agencies together, NASA's a part of it, to figure out what what, what would the standards and, and, and concepts look like for on-orbit servicing. So if we're going to have fueling depots and, and these transportation hubs, George talked about that some when you're when you're, you have these Leo destinations and then you want to move beyond that. What would that infrastructure look like so that not everyone that's going there is inventing it by themselves? It brings the cost down. It brings the innovation up. And like I said before, that all uh, supports national security. So so this is something similar to, to that. They're, they're partnering with NASA for this. They're going to get a whole bunch of different kinds of industry uh, involved. And they'll they'll do those things that Jeff Bezos thought was so important, was lay down the train tracks, lay down the telegraph wires so that the that the rest of uh, of economy and security can can take advantage of all that. So um, I, I'm excited about it. I uh, I think one of the interesting things when you look at the call is how it relates back to their interest in construction, their interest in mining and energy and agriculture. I, I think when we are talking realistically with each other about setting up lunar bases, commercial activity coming from the moon, bringing back value to Earth in a number of different ways, setting up long-term um, settlements there. These are questions that need to be answered. Uh, these are things that if you look at the call, they're they're looking for the ideas to come from the commercial sector. So I, I think it's got a lot of good pieces to it. Um, I'm excited to see what it looks like when it comes together. And Courtney, you said that there was some pushback. Who's pushing back? Why are they pushing back? Why well, would you push back? Uh, I'm generally hearing that there's some resistance in certain parts of the Pentagon that from a priority standpoint, should DARPA be uh, forging ahead on this? Uh, as to what the uh, detailed reasons are, I, I really don't have a, a clue. But as a veteran of many interagency uh, groups, sometimes uh, there's not always uh, an obvious logic, you know, that comes to mind. But yeah, there is some there is some some opposition. But you know, I think many of us in industry echo what Mike was saying. We're very supportive of it. Fingers crossed that at the Space Council, National Security Council uh, will make its uh, voice heard and the DARPA director will get the green light that I think we all, all of us uh, feel is, is necessary to move ahead. 
Yeah, I think one of the interesting parts about the call is it really just starts out with um, something along the lines of, you know, it's it's 2035 and the the economy of the moon is thriving. Okay, great. How did we get here? I mean, that <laughs> that that is what so many of us space economists, and I say so many of us, I mean, you know, the other four or five, uh, spend our time thinking about. And to have a call like this out of DARPA, where they're now saying, well, we're thinking about that too. And we want to understand how these individual scientific efforts and how these, you know, different technologies that need to solve these problems are all going to come together to create this, you know, amazing potential future lunar economy. Mike, Courtney, George, thank you all so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Laura. Thanks for having us. That's great. That's it for this week. If you like what you're hearing, follow the downlink on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Daily Defense and Aerospace Report podcast hosted by Vago Maradian and listen to Cavish Ships to hear the latest on what's happening in the maritime domain. I'm Laura Winter. And thank you for listening.